Welcome to another episode of the Tucson History Podcast from 1030 The Voice. I'm Greg Geringer, your host, and this is Where Are Our Freeways? There are a few great things about living in Tucson. We're blessed with some pretty good weather eight months out of the year. There's a gorgeous sunset nearly every night. The cost of living is still quite low compared to other cities in the West. But our roads really are a joke. And driving in this town is often a miserable experience, especially when the snowbirds are around. Even with two interstate highways, there's constant congestion on major surface streets, mainly because I-10 and 19 do nothing to facilitate travel from one side of town to another. Over the decades, there were forward-thinking individuals who drew up plans for freeways that could have made life much easier. But there were also plenty of powerful people who preferred to see Tucson remain a small town. They didn't want growth, and they didn't want sprawl to spoil the old Pueblo. With the perpetual cry of, we don't want to be Phoenix, the concept of Nim or not in my backyard also played a role. And there were certainly those people that felt the expense incurred by the city or county was way too much to bear. So as other cities throughout the country drafted freeway plans and proposals from the 1950s through the 80s, nothing happened here. Despite the naive idealism of the environmentally obsessed, we got the sprawl, but not the freeways. At the dawn of the Eisenhower administration, the former general who had been impressed with Germany's ambitious Autobahn construction placed a high priority on building a massive modern highway network here in the U.S. And with strong bipartisan support, the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956 was passed. With $100 billion, or nearly $1 trillion in today's dollars, was set aside for a 10-year plan to construct 42,500 miles of limited-access interstate highways connecting every U.S. city with a population of over 50,000 people. Safe, multi-lane, divided highways without a single stoplight or stop sign. You will travel swiftly, easily, and safely. This system of interstate and defense highways is for the traffic of the future. A few years prior to that, in 1948, a bond issue was actually passed here in Tucson to create a bypass called the Tucson Limited Access Freeway. It followed the current alignment of I-10. The first section completed was badged as State Route 84A and opened to traffic on December 20th, 1951. It stretched from Congress to Miracle Mile, but with no interchanges at Grand or Speedway. Still, residents whose commute to downtown from some of the newly built suburban areas was cut in half. They must have thought it was a sign of great things to come. By 1963, the route had been fully converted to federal interstate standards and became Interstate 10. In 1962, a three-mile stretch of I-19 opened from I-10 south to Valencia and another two miles in Green Valley the following year. In the 1960s, Tucson Transportation Authorities created proposals for a Rieto Freeway. That would have followed the current route of Ruthroff and Wetmore east to Campbell, where the Campbell Freeway would begin. Its route would be south to just north of 22nd Street. It would have intersected with an inner loop freeway called I-710. Being badged as such, there would have been large federal funds aiding in its construction. The 710 would have started at the 10 and then run east over to the current route of Keno Parkway. It would have continued south, intersecting the 
as it carried traffic to and from Tucson International Airport. Also intersecting the 710 between Broadway and 22nd would be the Butterfield Expressway. This freeway would have followed the current route of Aviation Highway and Golf Links Road out to Pantano Road. Other ambitious plans over the years also included a Pantano Freeway that would have met the Butterfield and carried traffic to the Rieto and south through what is now Rita Ranch to meet the 10 southeast of the city. Big ideas and big plans that never came to fruition. By the 1980s, it seemed clear to many that it was time to finally do something. In 1984, voters rejected a $16 million bond to fund studies for a 13-mile version of the previously mentioned East-West Rieto Freeway, extending from I-10 to Tanca Verde. After Phoenix completed plans for its current network of freeways in 1985, there was motivation to try again. But a year later in 86, Tucson voters turned up their noses to a half-cent sales tax increase. That would have funded 22 miles of new highways and grade-separated interchanges on many arterial streets, similar to the overpass at Wrightstown and Tanca Verde. In 2007, ADOT did come up with a proposal for four different bypass routes to ease congestion on I-10 through the city. One would have begun at I-10 near Abra Valley and continued east north of Oracle and the Santa Catalinas, then go east of the Rencones through the San Pedro Valley, meeting the 10 near Wilcox. Another would have originated near Vail, then its route would carry it past I-19 and then turn northwest of the Tucson Mountains and continue north. It would have stayed west of Marana and rejoined I-10 near Casa Grande. However, ADOT admitted at the time the project would still be 20 to 30 years away and that there was no known revenue source to fund the project's multi-billion dollar price tag. A significant portion of that second route was also proposed as a potential path for the new Interstate 11 to Las Vegas. A $15 million Tier 1 ADOT environmental impact study is now in its fourth year. Last year, ADOT also proposed a Sonoran Corridor project that would connect I-10 and I-19 south of Tucson International Airport, though this route was more about the flow of trucks carrying goods from Mexico. While it might have reduced truck traffic on a small portion of the 10 and the 19, it would do little to aid commuters. Tucson is the 52nd largest metropolitan area in the country, with just over 1 million people. Every other metro area with a comparable population, and many that are smaller, are all served by loops, crosstown, and or arterial freeways, easing commute times to suburbs. Tucson is an outlier, a rare bird, but there's hundreds of thousands who would love to get back all the hours they waste in traffic weekly. It would be nice to have a little extra time with their families. How much is that improved quality of life worth? But is it too late to do anything? Is it entirely cost prohibitive? Is it even the right path to pursue as we move into the future? Will we ever have our freeways? You're listening to the Tucson History Podcast from 1030 The Voice. I'm Greg Garinger, your host. And our first guest on the phone is Gene K. Wood of Old Pueblo Trolley. He's an expert on the history of Tucson transportation. At the beginning of the 1960s, there was a Tucson Freeway master plan that was created. And with Gene, we're going to throw out the names of some of those freeways and uh, let him reflect on what he remembers about them. Probably the one freeway that was talked about the most over the years was the Rieto Freeway. Yeah, well, it was really initially at least the Pantano Rito, and it was supposed to go from I-10 out near, somewhere near in the Rita Ranch area is today, 
and then uh, come up and follow the Pantano Wash and then the Rito Wash and tie back into Interstate 10 up around uh, uh, where Orange Grove Road is, somewhere in that area. And at least with that first discussion of it, how far do you think it got? Well, it was on a drawing board, and I mean, in the sense of a planning, um, and it was uh, the only piece I know of where actually a roadway appeared was between uh, 22nd and Golf Links, where there's currently Pantano Parkway, which is the name of the road. But, but that road was put through there on a right-of-way that was actually acquired to be part of the, uh, the project. But the project never went any further than that. Yeah, so that little stretch, like you said, just north of Golf Links over to 22nd, is like a little tiny taste of what could have been. Yeah, I guess if you could call it that. I mean, except it's a, um, you know, it's, it's just a four-lane arterial, which is fine for what it does. Um, but it, you know, it would have been, uh, you know, probably wider than that. Uh, that was probably before most of those subdivisions went in on the east side. So it probably would have been widened enough to put an actual freeway through there or parkway, they were calling it, not a freeway, which there is a, a technical difference between the two but sometimes they look almost the same and one of the other freeways that connected to the Rito pantano would have been the campbell freeway what that would have done i think is is have gone south uh, from the uh interstate at around campbell avenue or today Kino, and would have gone down to the uh, airport and then but north was the most significant one and that's what people got upset about it would have gone basically up campbell avenue on the east side of the university and it would have knocked out all the houses along campbell avenue in samu's neighborhood and um, and then it would have gone up like you said and tied in with the pantano Rito parkway and then let's talk about the east west butterfield expressway yeah it branched off of i-10 south of congress uh where the cushing on uh, 14th street alignment is and would have gone straight across basically 14th street uh, uh through armory park neighborhood and then crossed over the railroad tracks at that point um I don't think they ever selected a preferred alignment. They might have. But from there, there were three branches, or they weren't going to all be built. One, they were going to select one of the three, three options. And one of them went basically where Aviation Parkway goes along the railroad and then out Golf Links Road. Um, and the other one went, I think, around near 22nd Street. So they went through neighborhoods is what it was. And then the third alignment went east just in the south of Broadway, as I remember. And as the planning continued into the early part of the 70s, part of that western stretch of the Butterfield and the southern portion of the Campbell were going to be rebadged as I-710, right? The local area governments had no way to build the darn thing and buy all expensive right-of-way on that alignment. So they talked the federal government into adding it to the interstate plan at one point. And that project at least got to the point where some land was purchased. ADOT did purchase uh, some land um, for that. Basically, the, the, the part I remember was only a few houses in Armory Park neighborhood that were actually purchased. And they actually uh, uh, tore down a couple of houses. And that was part of the protest that started. Gene, in our brief conversation prior to this, you raised a really great point. 
You said Tucson's explosive growth in the 50s and early 60s put the city and county in a position where they barely had the ability to just keep up with the expansion of arterial streets, let alone freeways. Well, you're right. They didn't. And that's why the freeways became part of the regional effort in terms of regional planning. And then, uh, but none of the jurisdictions, the county was having growth in you know, outside the city limits, and they were trying to deal with arterials. Um, the city of Tucson definitely was. All those streets, when all those houses went in the 50s, you know, 22nd Street, uh, Broadway, they were all two-lane strip paving, you know, east of uh, Halvernon or that area. Uh, in fact, 22nd Street didn't go over the, the railroad tracks. Uh, that was at the edge of the railroad yards, and there were about six or eight tracks there. And they were held up all day long, all day long with uh, trains being switched. I think it was the early 60s, the mid-60s, when they built the overpass on 22nd over the uh, railroad. So there was just massive uh, congestion on the east side. So with the benefit of hindsight, Gene, was it a good thing or a bad thing for the city that we didn't get these freeways built 50 years ago? So whether the city would have been better off, I guess that's a matter of opinion. You know, I live on the east side out near Camino Seco and Speedway. And, you know, sometimes I gripe a little about the traffic driving across town. Sometimes if I'm in a big hurry, I say it'd be nice if we had a freeway. But other times I say to myself, you know, freeways can be really disruptive. And especially if you run them through neighborhoods, um, it's not a good thing. A lot of cities, the inner city part of the cities, were totally destroyed, I think, uh, by the freeways coming in. It was one of the things that really decimated the, the center, center city part of a lot of cities. So I guess my feeling is uh, we're better off without them. I know a lot of people would totally disagree with that. And the other thing I'd say, though, to our congestion is, you haven't been to Los Angeles, so we don't have congestion. We just think we do. Thanks so much, Gene, for your time. We really do appreciate it. Thanks for including me. And to look at the state of transportation in the city of Tucson today, what better person than the director of the Tucson Department of Transportation, Diana Alarcon. Diana, what was your first impression of the freeway situation in Tucson when you interviewed for the job in 2018? The lack of. Was it surprising? No and yes. Among all the freeway routes that have been proposed over the years, are any still under consideration today? Golf Wings right now, half of it, it actually acts in the capacity of a freeway. So our council has actually given us direction to look at the feasibility of extending it so we have our first east-west freeway highway kind of consideration. So we're currently undergoing that study. We actually started a few months ago. Like I said, these type of initiatives, they do not happen overnight. There's a lot of feasibility study. We have to look at what the right-of-way cost would be, what kind of mechanisms or what the tools are to build that type of concept so you can create that freeway feel. And we're hoping that we'll have those results back in the next month or two, that we'll actually be presenting that back to council for consideration that would be rolled into the mobility master plan and then actually that more long-term planning of the funding mechanism to get it done can be also brought in and considered. 
While it's not a full-scale interloop freeway like the once proposed I-710, the Downtown Links project is going to extend Aviation Highway to the 10 and ease congestion around our growing downtown. We're looking to start construction of that this spring. That's going to wrap around downtown. And so folks would be able to avoid the immediate downtown if that's not their initiative. They'll be able to use Downtown Links to get over to I-10, and it'll allow for a little bit more efficient use. And even though it hasn't been mentioned in the news all that much lately, the Sonoran Corridor is still on the table? So this is the planning of the connection of I-10 to I-19. So it is actually uh, you know, going through the process. Transportation planning isn't something that's done quickly. It is actually there, and especially when you are looking at it from a connection into the highway system, which is a federal approach, there are a lot of steps you have to go through. And so folks would like to see something happen at a snap, and but it doesn't. There are many steps you have to go through. So they're going through all of the proper processes on the federal level that we have to go through. So it's still on the table. And thanks to Diana Alarcon, director of the Tucson Department of Transportation. Next up on the Tucson History Podcast, former state representative and state senator Steve Farley. He was instrumental in helping bring the modern streetcar to the city, and he has some real insight into the future of transportation in Tucson. Now, Steve, before we talk about tomorrow in Tucson, let's take a minute to go back. What do you think some of the major things were over the years that kept almost all the freeways outside of the 10 and 19 from getting built? A lot of the initial push for freeways that was going in the 50s and the 60s, uh, passed by Arizona entirely. Even in Phoenix, they didn't get that underway until uh, the late 70s, early 80s. And here uh, we we had I-10 going through because that was the major uh, 70, 80 U.S. highway system and it was already in place. It was just basically a widening of the U.S. highway system to become an interstate. So I think there was a lot of already built-in issues with people who would have had to have given up their homes or businesses. If you look at the 1950s and what happened in the 50s and the 60s to our historic downtown, when in the course of urban renewal that was sweeping the nation, we ended up bulldozing some of our most historic parts of our of our city, which is now the Tucson Convention Center and the uh, city and county and state buildings. That, that really left a mark on our community for decades to come. When that happened and we ended up in the, in the name of quote-unquote slum clearance, we ended up sort of gouging out our heart. That, that's, that really built up um, a movement to never let that happen again. And when people started pushing in for the, uh, the, the Butterfield Expressway, that was uh, one of the, the freeway efforts that would have cut over in the same general area as where that urban redevelopment happened, people really started rising up. And that's part of why we have such strong neighborhoods and historic neighborhood and neighborhood associations who are controlling things like uh, in Army Park and West University in El Presidio, uh, where you've got boards overseeing what kind of development can happen in there. Uh, because people really didn't want to lose what we have that's precious. And, uh, and ultimately what that, that has done is it has actually ultimately created, uh, it, it was able to save stuff. So like now the downtown is coming back. We haven't gone ahead and destroyed our downtown the way a lot of cities did in order to build a freeway system that was much more dense. We still had the, the buildings ready to be reclaimed with, with urban redevelopment and create many more jobs that way and create more of a heart at the center of our community. Steve, I've discovered that there are a lot of people who have deep misconceptions about freeways in the city. A lot of them can't understand why we don't just start building them now. And one of the things I've seen in social media, and I've also heard people say it is, Phoenix did it. Why can't we? 
Can you explain why it's no longer really feasible? And then maybe get into some of the alternatives you think that we should explore in lieu of freeways. Well, I mean, first off, cost of right-of-way is massively prohibitive now, and we're pretty built out in all the areas that would be most useful for any sort of a freeway cutoff. And then the whole thing is once you make a commitment to build a freeway system like they did in Phoenix, you make a commitment for decades and decades to come, and you're going to pour billions and billions into there because once you build one freeway and it gets filled up, then there's more pressure to get another freeway. The problem is there really isn't the money out there to build any of that anymore. There's not going to be a fairy godmother federal government throwing a bunch of money into what we're doing. We have to pay for it ourselves. So right now the state is on a maintenance-only program for maintaining state highways. So anything we'd have to do would be locally, and we just don't have the resources down here to be able to pay for that kind of thing. So we've got to look at other options. And the good news is that the future is changing. Um, it's not the 1970s and 1980s anymore. We're, we're getting around differently. A lot of people are working out of their homes. Uh, we're using ride sharing, um, Uber and Lyft. Uh, we're using more public transit. We've got the streetcar that's a, a new model of how we could do. If we expand that, we could, have, we could have different types of development where people wouldn't really need to have a car. And if we redevelop differently in this urban village type model, then more people will be able to have what they need in their everyday uh, existence closer to where they're at without having to get in their car. So there's a, there's a lot of things changing in the future, and that's not even talking about self-driving cars. That will, that's totally a game changer, which even though it's, certainly there, there are issues to be overcome in that, you know, you think 20, 30 years from now, and that's basically your planning timeline when you're looking at, at transportation projects, uh, it's going to be a pretty major player, if not dominating the transportation scene that people will subscribe to cars instead of buying them, and the cars will be going around all the time, and you'll, they'll come and pick you up and drop you off. And there may be people with individual self-driving cars, but that probably will be just a few people who have the wealth to be able to have that. And that changes the whole way that you think about the transportation system, where you're looking at digital infrastructure along with the physical infrastructure, and potentially could enable you to put more vehicles in the same space since a car that is interconnected digitally with other cars on the roadway would be able to go at a faster speed closer together, and thus um, those spaces between cars that we have for safety now don't have to be there. So the, the, there's a lot of things to think about as we look at 20, 30 years down the line, and simply using sort of a 70s, 80s mindset about, oh, just put in another freeway, and we've seen the problems that come with that and the potential waste of money that comes with that. We, we, we need to start looking at different ways to, to enable our transportation needs to be met. Thanks to Steve Farley for being one of our guests on the Tucson History Podcast. Thank you. I appreciate you uh, having me on. And, uh, thanks for doing the topic because it's a very interesting one that more people should be thinking about. And again, our thanks to Diana Alarcon and Gene Kaywood for being guests. And that will close out this episode of the Tucson History Podcast. Every month, we'll have a new episode featuring memorable moments from the history of the old Pueblo. I'm Greg Geringer. Thanks for listening. The Tucson History Podcast is a presentation of 1030 The Voice and Bustos Media.